being reasonable. Now heard on WHUPLP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with Dr. Ray Barfield, professor of pediatrics and Christian philosophy at Duke University. He sits down to discuss his beliefs, as well as his journey from theism to non-theism and then back to theism. So let's welcome Dr. Ray Barfield. Since it's about beliefs, I was raised in Georgia with a pastor dad who was a mystic more than anything else, but he posed as a Presbyterian minister. But I was raised in a Georgia, you know, Southern religious culture. I was handed a very specific kind of theistic worldview. So I'm not trained in theology. I'm really trained in philosophy. But where the a kind of a theistic view and just what I was encountering in the course of, of being a, a pediatric oncologist, it wasn't science that ever bumped up against theism for me. It was suffering. And so, you know, I had a good stretch where, um, where I was a non-theist. And my journey back into theism you know, was motivated mostly by being captivated by science and by the life of the mind and by love. I just want to make sure I understand. So you grew up in a religious household, then you kind of had a philosophical background, mm-hmm. and you were a non-theist for a while, and then what made you question that was suffering. At that point, I think I lost you. I just want to make sure I understand. Yeah. So I was a joyful theist for most of my life. Okay. Um, really up until I was, I mean, I was an attending on a bone marrow transplant unit and um, just had a series of just death after death after death. Right. And um, I mean, people die all the time. I don't, I don't know why it hit me then, but um, I couldn't keep my image of God and the reality of what was happening to these patients in the same room. But I the see. patients were there. I see. I didn't want to change my whole worldview. I, I liked it, you know? I mean, if you live in a world that's created by a benevolent God who's sort of holding things, and, you know, that's a sweet little world to live in. So God is all-powerful, and if God is all-powerful, why does suffering exist? That was the, it was the old argument, you know, if God is, you know, God is either all powerful, but allows suffering, which means that God is not good, right? or God is good and suffering occurs, which means that God is not all powerful because anyone who's good would stop it. One of these things has to go. And how did you resolve that? I resolved that by, first of all, acknowledging some of the other parts of what it is to hold a belief what it is to view the world, uh, what it is to know myself, and to be a fallible explorer. So I started with a move towards humility, which is not something you see in a lot of the contemporary religious dialogues. There's more a sense of you must believe it, you must believe it this way. If it's not this way, you're the enemy. Do you mean like humility in the sense of what you don't know? Yep. And where that, with the person who got me there was Thomas Aquinas. I could see someone having humility and going both ways in the sense I could see someone having humility and saying, well, there 
is a God, but I don't really know in what form and how that exists. And but then I could also see humility in the sense that someone might say, oh, well, there probably isn't a God because how would I know such a thing? Right. Exactly. And there's a difference between knowing in the sense that we use, you know, sort of our, our standards of knowledge, which I think we have not spent enough time on what we mean by knowing. For example, I love my wife and my wife loves me. I know she loves me. Now, if you said, well, I want you to prove that she loves you. And I said, well, um, here's some actions that happened earlier in the day. If you then started talking about behavioristic psychology, mm-hmm. and you said, yeah, you know, these are actions, but you know, we can't gain access to our internal truth. <laughs> it's these actions that are all we can gain access to. It's like the old joke, you know, two people are lovers, and after sex, one of them says, that was great for you. How was it for me? <laughs> you know, it's like observing, right? Uh, only drawing conclusions from observable behavior. But the thing is, I do know that my wife loves me. Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, you can't prove it, I'll say, but I still know. Right. And so there's going to be a difference between what you mean by knowing, you're right. going to have a level of evidence, and what I mean by knowing, which is going to be something that has to do with a lot more than anything that qualifies as as proof. We went south when Descartes introduced us to um, doubt as a fundamental method that establishes the benchmark for acceptable knowledge. I mean, there's different avenues we can explore. So you talked about love and you said, well, how do I know that my wife loves me? And presumably, you know, through personal experience. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe what you're saying is that there's no objective way to know that your wife loves you. Well, there's no, there's no certain way. But as soon as you press on certainty, you begin to say, okay, well, what do I know with certainty? That's what Descartes did. What do I know with certainty? What do I actually know with certainty? Would another question be is, what are reliable ways to know things? Yeah. So reliable is not at the level of I must be certain Mm -hmm. in order to say I know it. Um, You can say, um, I know this. This is is knowledge that is reliable. So here's some. I drove over here and coming through Hillsboro, there's like 25 stoplights. And each time it turned red and the police house is right over there. Mm -hmm. So I made sure I stopped. Okay. How? I put on my brakes. Yeah. A lot depends on me knowing that my brakes are going to work. That's reliable knowledge. Every time I've done it in the past, they've worked. But that's not certain knowledge. Well, could reliable knowledge also be inferred as testable knowledge? No. Because, and here's why. And this is philosophical. You can't escape philosophy any more than you can escape chickens. I know. This is the chicken of philosophy. There's a lot of reasons why testability is not the criteria. One is that a lot of things that I might test are going to land me in false knowledge. How so? Right now, I'm testing a theory. Right now. Mm-hmm. I'm testing the theory that you are not a serial killer who invited me into this isolated space to shoot me. So I'm testing it right now, and you're not shooting me. Um, I'm going to test it again. You can, you'll, here we go, ready? Okay, so you didn't shoot me again. So I've t- I'm testing this knowledge, right? And so in a sense, like, I'm testing that knowledge, but that's not why I know you're not going to shoot me. Can you test a negative? Um, you know, the problem with epistemology is that you cannot test a negative. Um, it's, it's the problem with... Um, because I didn't cheat you, but I didn't also... 
I didn't do a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. There's an infinite number of things that you have not done to me. So I could be running an infinite number of tests right now. And each piece will count as a little bit of evidence. It's, it's something that um, a philosopher of science, uh, Hempel, called um, the paradox of the ravens. And so in logic, um, there are equivalent statements. I'm going to try to get this right. Um, I haven't thought about it in a while. If you say the statement, all ravens are black, that is equivalent logically, like tautologically, to the statement, all non-black things are non-ravens. So there's a sense in which we're out to have access to everything in the universe. And I begin testing every non-black thing in the universe. And I look at this table, or well, chair. It's white. Um, so it's, an, it's a non-black thing, um, and it's not a raven. Okay. And so that supports one half of the logical equation. All non-black things are non-ravens. All ravens are black. You know, I could go around and I could say a bunch of non-black things that are non-ravens. In each case, that constitutes, however small, a piece of evidence for all non-black things are non-ravens, but that is logically equivalent to all ravens are black. And so, in some sense... Is that a reliable way to find out what's true and real? Um... It's reliable in the sense that it's infallible, but it's not reliable in the sense that we can accomplish it because we're finite people. And so our finitude is part of, the, is part of what needs to be brought into the equation as we think about beliefs. Because if I had access to everything in the universe, I could literally go thing by thing and every non-black thing would be a non-raven. And when I meet a raven, the raven would be black. And I would end up with a consistent, complete set of data that would prove, because it's everything in the universe, that all ravens are black. Is truth an objective or subjective thing? Yes. It's both. So, for example, I have some chickens out here, and they're you know, running around, and they're you know, interrupting the interview periodically. But there's an even or odd number of chickens. You don't know what the truth is, but there is an answer to that. And if I don't exist, if you don't exist, could we agree that there's an answer there? There's an objective truth there? I think that it is possible to be something called a fallible realist, where you can lean on binary logic. There is either an even number, if there are chickens, in mm -hmm. the, if there are chickens in the yard, there's either an even number mm -hmm. or an odd number, or there's a fox. And so there's two and a half. <laughs> well, so the premise is that there's chickens. If there's chickens. So there's, can, we can, can we agree there's either an even or an odd number of chickens? Yes. If so there's, there's, so can if we there's agree chickens. that there's an there are objective truths? Objectively, there is either an even or an odd number of chickens. How could that be an subjective truth? Because um, when you see that chicken, mm -hmm. so it's not subjective in the sense that there's either an even or an odd number. It's not subjective in the sense that binary logic holds in the world of reality. It's only subjective in the sense that you don't have access to certainty as you assess that world. And so there may be five chickens out here, but you are, because of your love of Austria, hallucinating the Austrian chicken that's on the porch. And so you think there are six chickens. You see six chickens. But there are actually only five. But from inside your subjectivity, you don't have access to the um, differentiation between your hallucination of the Austrian chicken plus five compared to the five chickens that actually are there then couldn't we employ a professional chicken counter or a machine that does nothing but count chickens? Mm -hmm. And then we could find out, is there an even number or an odd number? Am I hallucinating? Am I not hallucinating? And we could still find out what the objective truth there is. So it would have to be a couple of things. One, your chicken counter 
needs to not have a predilection for hallucinating about Austrian chickens. How do you know? So from what you're saying, I guess there's really no way we can know anything. No, there's no way that we can know anything um, with certainty. There's no way that we can know anything with the kind of illusory high bar <laughs> approach that we think that we can lean on and, and rely on. Back to the example with the chickens. Okay. If we wanted to know what the truth is, and I guess chicken counters are out, how would we go about finding out what's true and real? I think that the ideal model of a community of learning, which is what the university used to be and what it could be, I think learning among friends, what we're doing right here is as close as we can get because you have lived a life and I have lived a life. You see a world and I see a world. I give up on certainty. I have at least a hope, and I can tell you why my, I have this hope, that we can asymptotically approach truth as you and I share stories about what we see in the world. But maybe not certainty, but maybe we could talk about reliability. Re reliability in the sense of Hume, of David Hume, you know, who completely undermined induction, which is what all of science is built on, uh, demonstrated philosophically in a way that I haven't seen a good argument that really completely refutes, that induction is not a possible mode of inquiry that leads to certainty. If we've got 50 people in Little Hillsboro here, and one of them has what looks like an outlandish theory, and 50 people are saying, well, no, you know, that's not quite true. You know, for example, if one of them says um, hydroxychloroquine you know, <laughs> cures coronavirus, right. and the other 50 who are uh, medically trained are saying, yeah, well, yeah, I don't think that's quite true then we're going to have, we're going to feel like communally, this person is an outlier. We're not going to say it's not possible that he's right. Maybe he is, you know? So what do we do in that case? If someone says hydroxychloroquine stops coronavirus in its tracks and other people say no, it doesn't, what do we do at that point? So at that point, we give hydroxychloroquine to patients with coronavirus and we see what happens. And so right now, there have been what? In a, in a trial, you said. Huh? In a trial. In a trial, yeah, sure. Make sure so people don't a, think that you're just... Exactly. Like, it's a test. You're testing it. And, um, you know, we've had two and a half million people or whatever it is that have coronavirus now. And um, So why don't we test other things in that manner? What's that? It seems like in that sense, knowing whether high hydroxychloroquine is safe is it, or does it work... It seems we've decided that the best way, the mo a, a reliable way mm -hmm. to, to do this would be to do it in a, in a clinical trial. Absolutely. We're doing it in a scientific method. And by science, we just means something that is a way of knowing, something that is a way of understanding aspects of how the universe works. It's orderly. It's communal. Mm -hmm. It's open to critique. Why don't we apply that to other areas of knowing things? Well, um, we apply it to a lot, and the question becomes among persons. Well, so for example, you say that your love. love is difficult to operationally define, maybe. Yep. I would think that we could come up with, let's say, we know sort of where love occurs neuroanatomically, and if mm -hmm. we put someone in an fMRI, and we show pictures of different people, including their spouses, and I'm just trying to think of a way you could approximate an assessment of that. Yeah. So were you to do that, your conclusion would be that when someone is engaged in an act of love, a certain portion of their brain lights up. Mm -hmm. um, so you take Einstein, put him in the fMRI, mm -hmm. and watch him think about relativity theory. You'd be able to say, when Einstein thinks about relativity theory, this part of his brain lights up. And in both cases, you're going to be able to draw exactly that conclusion that in this activity, this part of the brain lights up. In this activity, this part of the brain lights up. But you've said exactly nothing about what's true about the world. You've said nothing about the reality of love. 
You've said nothing about the reality of E equals MC squared. You've said nothing about anything in the world. You've only said something about brain states. I guess you're saying your point is that love is something that e emerges from neuroanatomical structures or... I don't know if love emerges from neuroanatomical structures or if neuroanatomical structures are more, you know, sort of morphed by love. I don't, I don't know, like, I, I don't have a causal... So let, let's say we're sitting here and I'm going to assume that you experience love and you're going to assume that I experience love and that'll be our premise. If my brain just magically just disappeared, I brain just flew away... Mm -hmm. Are you saying that's still possible for me to experience love? Um, well, I would be agnostic about that. I have no idea what would happen if you your brain disappeared, which would be death. I have no idea what would happen if you died, whether you could whether there's a you or not, or to love, you know? I have no idea. Like that's that we can talk about in a different question, because I have thoughts about it. If love is not reducible to your brain, where is it reducible to? Or is it just something that exist independently? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the thing that, the only thing that I can, I think, persuasively push against is that a, our default position, the reasonable position, is that because love disappears, your, your experience of love, your expression of love disappears when your brain disappears, that love itself is reducible to brain activity. I can push against that in multiple ways. I can say, look, if the moment, the moment before Einstein wrote down E equals MC squared, his brain disappeared, and no other brain was capable of leaping to a correlation between mass, energy, and the speed of light, that does not mean there is no correlation between mass, energy, and the speed of light. It just means we'll never know it. Okay, so one thing we're talking about, an aspect of physics that exists whether we exist or not. Yeah. And then we're talking about a sub subjective experience of love, whether that exists, whether we exist or not with a certain person. What we're talking about is an objective question in relationship to whether or not love is reducible to brain states. And if love is not reducible to brain states, we can have a conversation philosophically about, well, then what is love? What is love if it's not reducible to brain states? You know, there's a sense in which E equals MC squared is subjective. And the reason is because all of the information that even Einstein takes in from instruments, non-sentient metal glass instruments, he takes in through his own subjectivity. So there's a sense in which we see the world and we say things about the world it is still a binary truth that E equals MC squared is either true or not true in the world as it is. And Einstein's perception of the world and my perception of the world and your perception of the world, there is no way to escape subjectivity. There is no way for anything, even something that comes through an instrument. And this is, a, this is an argument that, um, that uh, Van Frossen made. You know, a great philosopher of science, which is that all scientific instruments are extensions of, you know, the eye, essentially. So our eyes just get bigger, but it still has to come in here. Yeah, I understand that. Whatever reality is that we're all interpreting it through our senses, and our senses can be seen as evolutionary ways to interpret things that help us procreate to the next generation, maybe. Maybe for and, whatever reason, seeing chickens is just evolutionarily beneficial, and there are none, but if we can see them, we'll survive. Even to the point where how we experience time or how we experience dimensions, I get that. The issue with that is, is that we can easily get to the point where we just don't know anything. Don't know yeah. in what sense. Well, because our senses trick us, and even, and even if we agree on things, even if we agree that E equals MC squared, we can show it in scientific, we can run studies that show it, and we, and we can show the physics behind it and how in information supports it, but, and we can all agree on it, but the point is, is that, well, that's just an artifice of how humans see the world, and that's it, and so but we it's can't not really skepticism. say anything. It's not, it's not skepticism, and it's not epistemological nihilism. It is humility. It is a sense in which 
Um, this is the best we can do. Um, maybe the world is like that, you know? This is the best that we can do. And, and, and the thing is, is that what it does is it undercuts the arrogance of a kind of worldview that prioritizes a certain sort of... Um, a certain sort of, you know, experimental approach to the world and then discounts all other knowledge because it doesn't fit into that. What this does is to say, even that, even that, there are arguments to undercut the certainty. As soon as we can all let go of certainty and say, okay, let's talk about knowledge in a different way. Let's talk about belief in a different way. Then we're going to have some modes of exploration that are fitting to chickens and some modes that are fitting to physicists. And then, and then we can say, well, are there any modes of exploration um, fitting to human relationships or to relationship to the divine or to moral thought? I understand that how approaching things with a level of humility can be seen as an intellectually honest pursuit. Would humility get us to believing in something that may or not be true? or to believing in something that's not necessarily true until I see evidence for that it's true. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, right now we have evidence that chickens are in your yard. But if it turned out that someone, you know, injected both of us with hallucinogens, mm -hmm. and later on we debriefed with the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, yeah, you know, I probably should have gotten consent before that. Please don't tell my IRB. I'll get in trouble. Um, you know, then we'd say, oh, okay, well, we had evidence for chickens. And at the time, the evidence for chicken was primus fascia mm -hmm. acceptable. Okay. But now I understand I was injected with a hallucinogen, right? Right. And so when Newton made his arguments for absolute space and absolute time, his arguments were compelling. Mm -hmm. Guess what? There's no such thing, you know? And over and over again, the part of the beauty of the intellectual, um, of the intellectual exploration of the, the universe that we call science is that we can know some things. I know that there's absolute time. I know there's absolute space. And then something comes along and now we don't know that anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, we know that there's not absolute time mm -hmm. and absolute space. There's space time. Um, I can't tell you, given the shift from absolute space and absolute time to space time, what 50 years from now is going to be the thing that makes us think, oh, yeah, space time. That made a lot of sense then. But gosh, now we really understand that this is the mind of a magic genie. Right. That we've now got evidence for the magic genie, and that's why, you know, things, right? How do we choose then between someone wants to believe in a magic genie, somebody wants to believe in a god, someone wants to believe in a specific god, like a Christian god or the god of Vishnu? There's lots or, of them. You know, there's, just, there's lots of gods. <laughs> there's lots of so, so are we talking about god in a generic sense, or are we talking about god in more of a specific personal sense? Most of the... Um, most of the theistic traditions that I'm familiar with would, uh, in their better moments, which, you know, unfortunately can be few and far between these days, at least in the United States, um, in their better moments, they make positive assertions about the character of God, but with humility, and end every every sort of inquiry with, um, but God is bigger than anything that we can understand. And so you have to understand everything that we... How do we know that? How do we know that God is bigger? Mm -hmm. We don't. I mean, it's a, um, you know, I would say that it's a reasonable extrapolation from the fact that um, probably if you and I lived 40 more years, mm -hmm. I would still not grasp all of the complexity of who you are, of what your history is, of what your history means to you, of what your relationships are. You know, there would be a great deal that I, I can't grasp. And that's just you and me. So if there is a God, I think it's at least plausible to say we probably can't understand God comprehensively, not because God necessarily doesn't want to be understood, but because we're finite. 
That was actually what got me back on a, a path to thinking about theism from the in the middle of non-theism. It was when Thomas Aquinas, he said, um, um, I think it was in the Summa Contra Gentilis, um, but he said, he said, the deepest thing we can know about God in this life is that we do not know what God is. And when I, when I first read that, I thought, you know, given all of the um, challenges that I've had trying to come up with a coherent account of rationality, like of how a three-pound piece of meat can reliably think thoughts that I want you to accept as rational, given all the problems that I'm having with that, with mm -hmm. love and with joy and with longing and with everything else, um, I could at least be open to an exploration of the divine, starting with, you know, the deepest thing we can know about God in this life is that we don't know what God is. And then when I found out he stole it from Augustine, who said, if you think you understand God, I assure you, the thing you understand is not God. So these, these, these people are, are, are trying to say, it's, it is this enormous sort of sense of, uh, we, if, if I know anything, I know that there's more to the story of my love for my wife, my, my, my daughter, my son, and my grandson than biochemistry. A thought experiment. Yeah. Let's say uh, Tony's sitting next to you. Okay. Tony believes that Buddy Holly is God, a literal God. Tony prays to Buddy Holly, and if someone asks, how do you know Buddy Holly is a literal God, he says something like, well, the first thing about Buddy Holly you should know about is as soon as you think you know something about Buddy Holly, you don't know anything about Buddy Holly, mm -hmm. and that Buddy Holly is something that really can't be described by how we describe Buddy Hollies, and that we're just not uh, advanced enough or don't live long enough to, to know Buddy Holly or to encapsulate him. Mm -hmm. What would we think about what Tony's comments are about Buddy Holly? Well, I mean, it's Buddy Holly. I mean, he's probably right. Right. But um, Should have picked a different one. You know, <laughs> um, the thing is, is that everything that he said about his exploration of Buddy Holly's divinity is something that I would say, well, you know, as a um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a procedural approach to exploring the divinity of Buddy Holly, I don't object to it. Now, I would say there's nothing in your statement that offers evidence that Buddy Holly is God. But um, it may very well be that the only way that I could explore Tony's um, assertion that, that he just knows, right? He's like, if you, don't, you either know it or you don't know it. If you don't know it, you're one of the non-knowers. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well, right now I'm a non-knower. How do I come to know mm -hmm. whether Buddy Holly is a god? And he says, well, you know, what you really need to do is talk with Buddy Holly. If you just talk with Buddy Holly one time, mm -hmm. just talk with Buddy Holly, you'll know. Okay. Right. So if that's now the condition for knowing whether or not Buddy Holly is a god, if that really is, if we agree, okay, yeah, you know, that makes sense that only if I do this thing would I ever be able to assess whether Buddy Holly is a god, then I have to remain agnostic okay. in relationship to the divinity of Buddy Holly, unless I actually go and talk. If that is the sole condition, is that I talk or talk repetitively to Buddy Holly, um, but say Buddy Holly, you know, came, came, came up here. Uh, say, you know. What, what if Buddy Holly doesn't talk back? Well, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a sense in which there's no way. I don't know how best to say this because, I, you know, I know, I know where you're going. I mean, that's exactly where I've gone. And it's compelling, you know. Um, if you're depending on a sense of a certain criteria of evidence, you know, so you say, well, Buddy Holly needs to talk back to me. And that's the criteria. If Buddy Holly doesn't talk back to me, then, I, then Buddy Holly's not divine. And Tony would want to say, no, wait a minute. My, like, I, I have been in Buddy Holly's, you know, presence. Um, I, Buddy Holly's 
le- left the earth, okay? Buddy Holly's not here anymore. But I have a sense of Buddy Holly's presence. And, um, and, and really, the only way that you can explore Buddy Holly's divinity is to, you know, you have to meditate for like an hour a day and repeat, you know, I'm open to the presence of Buddy Holly, right? Well, there's nothing I can do to prove that that's not a way to achieve access to Buddy Holly as a divinity or to explore the hypothesis that Buddy Holly is a divinity, you know. But if I'm going to say anything about the um, experience of the presence of Buddy Holly, and if the only condition that I have so far, I've only got one person who's experienced the divinity of Buddy Holly, and that person says, in order to experience the divinity of Buddy Holly, what you must do is to sit and meditate quietly, asking for the presence of Buddy Holly, and you will simply know. And I'll be like, all right, you know, life is short. I got a lot of things to do. I'm probably not going to do that. But if you do it and you don't experience that, then I can only say that um, I have not yet experienced the divinity of Buddy Holly. But if I do it and something does happen, I can say, I'm not sure it was the presence of Buddy Holly, but something happened. You know, but one thing I know for certain is that if I a priori, before sitting in meditation, opening myself to the presence of Buddy Holly, say, that's stupid, then I am making an assertion based on literally zero evidence. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tony's making an assertion based on a little evidence. Tony's saying, I opened myself to the presence of Buddy Holly and the presence of Buddy Holly showed up. Okay, that's a little bit of evidence, at least on the surface of it. I don't have any evidence because I haven't sat in the presence of Buddy Holly. I'm a third person, mm-hmm. and I'm watching you and Tony talk. Tony's going on about how Buddy Holly is a literal god, and he senses Buddy Holly, he prays to Buddy Holly, and he feels Buddy Holly. You're saying, I don't see it. You know, I'm not getting, I'm not getting there. I tried to, you know meditate. I'm not really seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a third person. And I just want to believe in true things. Mm-hmm. Where are we then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And your only way into the debate is going to be, in this case, yeah. is going to be, th- there's no way out of meditating and opening yourself to the presence of Buddy Holly. It's just like if you watched me and my wife, okay? And you were like, I just want to know true things. I want to know true things. I just want to know the truth about love, right? And so you're watching us, and you're like, all I can see is a couple of people who are, like, cooking together, gardening together, chat, 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 saying some words, going, you know, that's all I can see. And you're like, I mean, that's not love. And, and we would both turn to you and say, you know what? We continue our conversation with Dr. Ray Barfield, professor of pediatrics and Christian philosophy at Duke University, Coming up, right after we listen to Skylord, the excellent new track from the Charles Hansen Family Band, now available on Spotify and iTunes.
it doesn't matter who's around, that thing exists to the extent that we can agree that things exist. Um, see, that's a difficult question because right now we're surrounded by things that we can't perceive because we don't have the right instrument to pick it up. Our eyes and our ears can't pick up certain, you know, frequencies of sound or of light or so of because whatever. we can't pick up certain things with our senses, because we can't see certain wavelengths or hear certain sounds, does that mean since we can't do something that makes it more likely that this other thing is true? No. It doesn't make it it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not it's true. It only has a bearing on what level of evidence would be needed in order for a statement that it's not true to have um, really any sort of um, compelling, you know. So, and here's what I mean by that. If I said uh, there is purple light coming from the trees right now, and if you just squeeze your hand like this, just squeeze your hand, you know, and just keep doing it, you know, do it a hundred times and you're going to see the purple light. All right. Now, if you do it a hundred times and you don't see purple light, maybe something else went wrong. I don't know, but maybe there's no purple light. Either one of those is possible, but at least you can say, well, I tried and it didn't work. I didn't see any purple light. And so right now, you know, I have no reason to um, believe that there's purple light there. You know, even if even even though there's a thousand other possible explanations, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, people who are with your cultural background have to put your hand on your head while you do it. A perfectly reasonable explanation. So it didn't conclusively show anything about the presence or absence of purple light. But if you do this and you see purple light, you still don't have certainty, but you're like, dang. Right. Right. And if you say, that's stupid, there's no way that doing this is going to make me see purple light. You just say that, you just assert that, then you're out of the game. Does it matter? Does it matter to you whether that belief corresponds to something that's true? How, how important is it for you to believe in things that are true? Everything is important about that. I will trade a comfortable belief for a true belief any day of the week. That's how I ended up as a non-theist. I mean, it was the most uncomfortable position I could possibly take, but it was the only possible true position I could take given where I was at at that point. And help me out, and my listeners are going to want to know this too, what was the thing that pushed you f over from being a non-theist to a theist? What was it? Was it some, what was the epiphany or what was the graduation or what was the knowledge that you gained? What was it in your life that transformed how you see the world? So one thing that absolutely has to be acknowledged is that, um, you know, my view of a kind of a monotheistic God and where, I mean, I was raised with that. Yeah. That like I was conditioned in many ways to be um, oriented toward the possibility of the divine. Yeah. If someone's raised with an absolute like proscription of all divine beliefs, yeah. and that's actually a source of shame or um, whatever in, in the house, you know, they're going to be in a different place than I was. And mm -hmm. so just the fact that my parents were theists is going to have a bearing on whether or not I'm open to a certain set of beliefs. That's sure. a given. Sure. So my move back toward theism mostly had to do with, um, well, if I go all the way with non-theism, is there anything that's lost? Like, like what do I lose in... Um, in my worldview or in my explanation of things. And one of the things that I, and I still can't, I have read so many accounts of, um, you know, like Owen Flanagan uh, wrote this book called Meaning in a Material World, trying to come up with a way to achieve meaning mm -hmm. or rationality or whatever in a meaningful world. His colleague, Alex Rosenberg, wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality, which is a fantastic book because it's so honest. It really bites the bullet. What is love? You know, it's like 
uh, it's a solution to a strategic biological problem, right? But um, I have to, when I look at those kinds of things, what, what becomes very clear to me is that if I'm going to have a consistent worldview, I am going to begin with um, some axioms, with some starting points. There's no way to avoid that. Um, I mean, even in mathematics, you know, um, we all have to start with some miracles. We have to start with something. Or some premise, a better and, way to say it. Right. We have to start with some premise. But I really, and this is not an atheist show. This is a, no, no. This is, this this is, is a, a truth. epistemological show. Yeah. And so people who listen to this are generally, really, I think, want to know what was the thought process that, okay. often the thought process, mm-hmm. in my experience of interviewing people, and you're probably the first I've interviewed, and I've interviewed probably over 100 people at this point. When the direction goes, it goes direction from religious to atheist, non, or non-theist. And I think you're the, probably the first person I've interviewed, I think, who's gone from non-theist mm. to religious. I want to know how that happened and yeah. what, where, what was the thought process. So, you know, there's a, there is a... Um, there is a difference between theism and religious yeah. that, that for me is important right now um, because of just the way that a lot of religious people are behaving. And, and, you know, that by itself sort of is a distraction from the question, what kind of universe do we live in? I think that um, here's a couple of things. Let me just try a few ideas and see how they land. Okay. One is asking some simple questions. This helped. And so one of the most fundamental questions in philosophy that most of your listeners will probably know is the question that Leibniz asked, which is, why is there something rather than nothing? Probably most of your listeners will have heard explanations that involve references to things that most of us can't get a hold of, including myself, like, you know, the multiverse universe and, you know, sort of oscillating patterns, you know, that led to the Big Bang or whatever. And so, you know, one of the one of the starting points that helped me open myself back up to wonder, which is sort of a condition for this for for um, addressing this particular kind of question was Leibniz's question. And so what I realized is that when Leibniz says, why is there something rather than nothing? I said, okay, well, first I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to imagine nothing. First thing I do is I import in laws, you know, vacuums, um, forces. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I'm like, okay, I need to get those away. And I began to realize it is really hard to imagine nothing. Get to that. By definition. Yes. Yes. So try to get there imaginatively. Get as close as you can. Then think about one thing, an atom, popping into existence out of nothing. Then think about the difference between the atom and nothing. Yes. It proves absolutely nothing. But for me, what it does is to open up a sense of, huh, you know, all right, well, that's a strange sort of question because the fact that there's something or the fact that something might come from nothing um, are both equally strange. And so it's just an introduction to strangeness. And the reason it's important is because we haven't said anything about God. We've just said there was nothing, then there was a thing. And we've talked about the difference between the two. And we said, that's strange. Once we are okay with strangeness, Mm -hmm. then we no longer put the God hypothesis in a separate category of strangeness. No matter where we get, it's going to be strange. No matter where we get, right? And to be clear, sometimes I listen to these, my shows, I can come across in a way I'm not intending is that I really do want to believe in true things. Mm-hmm. And if the logic takes me there, mm-hmm. and the evidence and the reliability of the evidence takes me there, I'm happy to go there. Yeah, I, I believe it. I, I can tell just from the way you ask questions. And that's the only way to be. Yeah. You know, otherwise, what you're going to end up with is not an exploration of true things. You're going to end up with an idol. Yeah. 
And when something that you have to protect because it's something that happened when you when you were eight that you can't remember or something like that, you know, um, or because you need to maintain control of the politics or some other ridiculous reason. So we're on the same page with that. Absolutely. All right. So we start with Leibniz's question, and it gets us to strangeness. And what it does is it takes the God hypothesis out of the other category, and it says, no matter what, it's going to be strange. So let's truly try to open ourselves to possibility, right? Yes. And then we begin to ask questions. Now, what got me to non-theism was asking a question about, was asking a would the universe make more sense with or without a God, whatever God is? So we're not talking about what God is. We're just saying a divine element. We can talk about what God is some other time. My only concern is where, I mean, I think it's an interesting place you're starting off with, and it seems like a fair inquiry. My fear is that we're going to get to a point where we're going to hit an infinite regress. We're not going to hit an infinite regress. What we're going to hit is this, the um, sense that the conclusion about whether or not there is a God is not a conclusion that comes simply from your cognitive activity any more than the conclusion that love between a man and a wife comes from a purely cognitive... There's going to be an experiential aspect to it. So we've got strangeness. You know, no matter what, it's going to be strange. So we're going to have to... We're going to have to do strange. And, um, and then the second thing, and again, this is just the way I got my, thought my way. This was what my thinking was. So the second thing is that the mode of exploration, the way we approach a question, can't eliminate um, the personal or the experiential if... The personal and the experiential is a condition for discovering the truth of the thing. And so that's why I use love, you know, as an example. The person who is trying to discover the other person, whether it's a human or God, will have to use modes of inquiry that are fitting to persons in the same way that I can't do astronomy using a microscope. I have to use the right instrument. So the argument that I'm trying to build toward is that if anyone can accept that you're not going to learn a lot about love, about its reality, about its character, about anything, without engaging um, with, the other per with another person, and if it's at least reasonable to say that God is more like a person than an equation or a rock, or a force, then whatever the, whatever the modes of inquiry for other persons are, are going to have to be admitted into the, the repertoire of our, um, of our ways of exploring. Okay, so that's the second part. Okay. Then the third part, and all this is, this is nothing but just letting go of bias. It's just opening to possibility right? This, that's all this is. And then for myself, and this is, you know, I, I, I call myself a troubled theist. I am always teetering in the sense that I count my knowledge as truly just fallible because I've screwed up so many times. I've gotten so many things wrong. You know, I may have this wrong. So this is not my journey towards certainty that God exists. This is my journey towards theism, which is an orientation right? And, um, and so it's a fallible orientation. It's a troubled orientation. It's an unsettled orientation. All right. So, so those are the first steps of, of sort of getting to a place of openness. So when we're there, um, there's a couple of things that we can do with integrity without committing one way or another. One thing we can ask a question, are you there? We don't have to know what we just, are you there? And just see what happens, right? Like, that's not going to hurt anything. We may delude ourselves, of course. There's a thousand explanations. It's just like your chickens. They may be hallucinations. Fine. I'll get, give all of that. We're fallible. But we can ask, you know, are you there? We can ask, if you were there, whatever you is, if you were there, 
What difference would it make? And then we can approach like different things in the world. Um, we can approach evil. You know, we can approach the suffering of dying children who have never done anything wrong. And we can say, would this make more sense or less sense if you were there? It, in my opinion, it makes less, less sense. Like, it makes no sense at all, right? All right, okay, one for makes no sense. And then I just go through things. I go through my experience of loving, loving my daughter, of listening to music, of doing math in my head. You know, I go thing by thing by thing. And all I ask is a simple question. Would my assessment of this thing, that love is real, make more or less sense were there to be a God than if everything just popped out of nothing and was, you know, a sort of ongoing variation on material variation. And it's not a conclude. it's not, it's not conclusive. It's not, it is, it is, what is my sense? Would this make more sense or less sense? And the reason I'm a troubled theist is because when I look at evil, I see no escape from no sense at all. Right. I do not get it. That's the problem of evil. What I came up against was the problem of good. And I came up against my moral life, my life of love, my life of inquiry, my life of thought, my life of feeling, my life of longing, my life of, of, of a correlation between two pounds of meat and things that happen in the world that are predictive with my experiments that I do and things like that. And so there was a, um, that was not to answer the question. It was, it, it was simply brought me to a place where I felt evidence on both sides. I felt like pulled on both sides. Like it does to me make more sense that if the world is, you know, the universe is in some way meaningful as a whole, which would have to be created to be. I mean, meaning, my, all my experience of meaning is that meaning, you know, comes from persons, right? So for each of these things, um, I lean very much towards it makes no sense uh, if there's a God with evil, and I lean with each of these other things towards it makes more sense in a universe that's meaningful as a whole. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. WHUP 